0: An Orthodox Jewish leader is concerned about the persecution of Christians in the Middle East.
1: Thanks
0: for joining us, friends, on this Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. Michael Brown here with a very important broadcast. It's going to be eye-opening. Call a friend, text a friend, message a friend, tell him to tune in. I'm going to first speak with an Orthodox Jewish colleague from Israel who's very concerned about the persecution of Christians in the Middle East. And then, bottom of the hour, going to interact with a Jerusalem Post article by a North Orthodox rabbi, talking about the COVID virus, is it an act of God, a judgment of God? And we'll take your Jewish-related calls, 866-348-7884. Without further ado, I want to bring on my friend Jonathan Feldstein from Israel, uh, staying up late to, to call in and talk with us. Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us on today's broadcast.
2: It's great to be with you. Happy Thoroughly Jewish
0: Thursday. Thank thank you so much. Uh, We had the joy of of writing an article together confronting contemporary anti-Semitism. And despite our theological differences, we are joined very deeply in other areas. So, Jonathan, you've been involved in a number of major initiatives in in Israel. There was an ambulance initiative, and and now another one we'll let you share with our, our listeners in a moment. But how is it that you, an Orthodox Jew, are concerned about the persecution of Christians in the Middle East?
2: Um, well, I'm concerned. That's a great question. I'm concerned because I think um, that we all have a responsibility, Jews and Christians, to be, to be looking out for the well-being of one another. Um, I live here. I see what goes on. Uh, the, the Middle East is rampant with Islamic hatred for Jews and Christians, and it, it, to, to me it's just, it's just a, a, a logical imperative.
0: Yeah, well, I I appreciate that, and that would be in keeping with with traditional Jewish thought as well. What is it that has prompted you to be speaking out even more these days?
2: Well, I'm very close with Christian Arabs in the north of Israel. Um, I can go into uh, some depth to some of the persecution that they suffer. I live across the valley from Bethlehem. Both Nazareth and Bethlehem used to be majority Christian cities. Now they are fairly minority Christian cities. And, and the persecution that's uh, afflicting Christians in the land, and the persecution that's afflicting Christians in the Middle East in, 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 broadly. I think what Turkey has done recently, and the petition that we've uh, initiated in order to try and get them to reverse the decision to convert a former mosque, excuse me, a former church into a mosque this week, um, is a canary in the coal mine for all of us. Um, Turkey does not have the good history vis-a-vis Christians, very little of the Middle East has a, uh, a, a very good history These a vis Christians, and, and in the place where Christianity was was uh, birthed, Jews and Christians, I think, have an obligation to stand together. And, and if it takes an Orthodox Jew sitting in the Land of Israel to do it, then I'm honored to do so.
0: Uh, Jonathan, you mentioned Christian Arabs. You mentioned their diminishing population in larger Israel. But we're often told that's because of Israel, that the policies of the nation of Israel have been hostile to Christians, that Israel is engaged in some type of genocide, and that Christians are suffering terribly. I've understood it, that Christians are suffering under Palestinian authority and, and Hamas. What's what's your view being on the ground there?
2: In the, my, my understanding as well, within the Palestinian Authority, Christians have to toe a line and are not allowed to... Um, express their Christianity in a, 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 and, and what should be, uh, uh, according to Christianity, an obvious love and support for Israel and the Jewish people. Um, but they're not allowed to do that, and they risk um, they risk their ministries, they risk their businesses, they risk their lives. If that's the case in the Palestinian Authority, in the State of Israel, it's not quite as bad. But uh, four years ago, next month, my daughter was married the day before her wedding, my very close Christian Arab friends were supposed to come to the wedding, and their business was firebombed. And there's any number of of acts of intimidation, of of outright persecution, um, of of Christians in general, but specifically Christians in the state of Israel who are standing up and identifying positively as Israelis. There's a growing number of Christian Arabs as Israeli citizens who are joining the army and are are doing uh, civilian national service. And people who do that, you know, we talk about being unfriended um, in social media, but are are, are truly ostracized and persecuted in one organization that I'm in touch with that helps Christian Arabs just have all of their social media shut down because Muslims were attacking the the site and reporting it as... um, as hostile uh, as hostile, so Facebook, WhatsApp, and others simply shut it down because they have a predominance. All it takes a couple of thousand Muslims to say that one particular Christian organization that has the audacity to use a Star of David in its logo mm.
0: um,
2: is incitement.
0: Right, and in the past, uh, if if there was someone, it could be a Muslim, sold his or her land to an Israeli, they they could be killed for doing that, but. What about, say, in in Israel, say if you live in Tel Aviv, let's say you're from a Muslim background and you start attending a church and you convert to Christianity. That's fine with the state and the government of Israel. People are free to to do that. What if something like that happened under Hamas or under Palestinian authority? How would that be viewed?
2: They would be, I don't know what the word in Arabic is, but they'd be viewed as apostates and risk being killed.
0: Yeah. So, friends, you need to understand the place where there is religious liberty and protection for Christians, by and large, is Israel. And when you get into Muslim-controlled areas, that's where the persecution rises. So what's, what's the worst of it, and, and, and what is it that was a tipping point? I mean, you've spoken out about these things before, but some of the specific things that caused you to raise your voice now and sound the alarm and try to get the attention of Christians in the West—
2: Well, the the, the specific things it's it's been something that's a passion of mine for a very long time. Um, For for, for a decade and a half since I'm living here, and and just as a a good person and a good Jew, understanding that Jews and Christians must be uh, on the same side of of, of this battle, uh, the battle against people who are godless and who threaten us, who who worship the Creator. Um, but, But specifically recently the audacity of, of the Turkish government to uh, to make a declaration that they're going to convert a former church, a, 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 I believe it was a Byzantine church, uh, stunning uh, World Heritage Site, into a mosque, which is effective tomorrow, unless unless maybe people will find the petition enough and, and, and maybe there'll be enough of an outcry. And the confluence between that and the last several months of my spending more time in the Galilee among Christian Arabs in Israel, knowing the the, the, the persecution that's going on. I, I can't talk a lot about it, mm-hmm. because some people could be threatened, but I, I, did, I happened to do a tour of parts of the Galilee, which used to be very heavily Christian, and there are vacant, empty homes after empty homes after empty homes where Christians have... Led. And the irony, because we're talking about the paradox between the State of Israel and the Palestinian Authority, the Palestinian Authority and, quote-unquote, the Palestinians for decades have blamed us for a refugee problem, which which is not the topic of conversation now. But what's ironic is that the Arabs, the Muslim Arabs, in the Palestinian Authority and in the State of Israel are creating their own refugee problem of of Christian Arabs, who are fleeing and leaving their homes abandoned, and the homes, as, as in most of us in our lives, our home is often the largest asset that we have. People are simply fleeing in order to get away from the persecution and the threat. So it's been the confluence of these things that's really that's really called uh, me to take action, both in terms of uh, launching a petition that people can sign, and that's, thank God, it's going out internationally, but Frankly, with all candor, not enough. And a good Christian friend who's an Assyrian said to me, she bemoaned the fact that she said Christians in the West are spineless, and I am hoping that part of our conversation today will prove her wrong, that Christians will come and sign the petition, we'll have tens and hundreds of thousands of names, as we should, calling upon the Turkish government to return the the property to, to what it was and not be a mosque. And, and I, can't, I don't have any say or influence over the Palestinian Authority. I'm glad I don't live there. I'm glad, I'm glad I don't have—that uh, I'm not a Palestinian Arab. But I am a, a citizen of the State of Israel, and I believe as a citizen of the State of Israel, and as an Orthodox Jew, we have that responsibility. And I, um, I, I want to say it's a pleasure. It's not. It, it, it's, a, it's an imperative. It's the word I used before. It's an absolute obligation for me to be involved with it.
0: Jonathan where can we'll we'll post the petition on our social media sites as well but where can folks sign this petition
2: So we have a link on our website It's genesis123.co not .com but .co genesis123.co there's a tab in the middle that uh that that uh, calls, uh, invites people to sign the petition and protest the turkish action
0: And and again friends you have to understand that this this turkish action has a lot more symbolism with it and and is more of the the islamic conquest over something and and the snuffing out of christianity and christians there's much more to it than just a a building and and when you think that christians around the world are literally risking their lives for their faith and they're not backing down and all we're saying is sign a petition sign a petition If we can't do that, how can we call ourselves brothers and sisters? Hey, Jonathan, one minute before we have to go. uh, What are you doing right now? Can folks find out about that at Genesis123.co, the larger work you're involved in? Just give a quick overview.
2: Yeah, we're doing some great things. We had some programs that you know that involve tourism, uh, bringing Christians and Jews together here in Israel. That's unfortunately not happening for the pandemic reason, but we've got a great program called Verses for Zion, that people can check out to give Christian children an opportunity to study biblical verses that relate to Israel and be incentivized to do so, and that's also so exciting for me because because we don't want people to take it for granted. We want people to understand that it's in their Bible why they need to be supporting and caring about Israel and the Jewish people. And uh, we have a lot of other teams. We're we're, we're re- repurposing as many other organizations are the Genesis One Two Three Foundation. And um, if any one of these programs. The than it is to be. I think that we will have
0: done our job. All right, awesome. Jonathan, thanks for staying up to call in. Everyone go to Genesis123.co. We're going to be posting links. Get as many signatures as we can. Let's stand together. Thanks for what you're doing. I really appreciate it. God bless you, my friend. Nice to talk God to bless. you. God bless. Thank
1: you. it's the line of fire with your host dr michael brown get into the line of fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH here again is dr michael brown
0: thanks for joining us on thoroughly jewish thursday if you have a jewish Related calls, so as long as it can tie in with something Jewish, be it Hebrew language, be it Hebrew Bible, be it Jewish people in history, be it Israel Today, anything like that, 866-348-7884. I am looking on my computer. I cannot show you these pictures. You'll understand why. But it is a, a Pakistani brother that I met a few years ago while ministering in the States. He was briefly in the States. He has written about the suffering of Christians in Pakistan. They are second-class citizens. I'm talking about the genuine Christians. They are second-class citizens in much, if not all, of the country. They uh, are deprived of best jobs. And, and if you want to launch a charity or well, you blaspheme the prophet, you just basically kill the person, there'd be very little recourse. There are many horror stories from Pakistan over the years, some of them well-known, most of them unknown. So this brother contacted me with news about a Christian man living in a new area. The Muslims didn't want him there, and they killed him. Now, again, it's not every person that is getting killed, all right? But uh, this did happen. Uh, tragically, there there are martyrs, widows right now, and I'm I'm looking at the picture of one of them. I'm looking at the picture of one of them. So here, just speaking with Jonathan Feldstein about... The persecution of Christians in the Middle East. Let's expand that a little bit into the larger world. And this is a reality. Our brothers and sisters are paying with their blood. Now, you might you might say, well, well hang on, hang on. I, I got a problem here. Because you've been talking about opposition to Messianic Jews in Israel. And you've been saying that there were counter-missionary organizations that were able to get Shalanu TV shut down. The Hebrew channel of God TV in Israel, and uh, how how can you say Israel is so open minded? Well, on the one hand, to say this again, if you live in Israel, you have more religious liberties than anywhere else in the Middle East. If you're a Muslim living in Israel and you become, <laughs> excuse me, a follower of Jesus, well. Your own family may want to do something to you, but it's fine with the government. It's perfectly fine. You can convert. There's no issue. Or a Christian to a Muslim, or a Jew to a Muslim, or a Muslim to a, to a Christian, you can could, you could convert. There's not going to be a problem with that with the government. There's freedom to do that. There's freedom to gather, have your worship services, do what you do. Now, there, there are ultra-Orthodox Jews that really hotly oppose Messianic Jews in particular. That's their greatest enemy. Jews who believe in Jesus and are sharing their faith. But even that being said, it's still a free country. In other words, the, the vast majority of Messianic congregations and house groups in Israel meet freely. Some have suffered opposition and persecution and, and harassment, all right? But the vast majority can, can meet freely. They do outreach. They share their faith. If you're working a job you can share your faith now there will be discrimination that comes against you in different ways you are part of a minority faith and and if you tried to do that in a very religious area that would be dangerous that you'd be asking for trouble if if you did that all right that's i I fully understand that and and yes i do expect as the orthodox population grows and gains more power in Israel that the conflict will look very much like it looked like in the Gospels and Acts. I've believed that for many, many years, that that we'll see kind of a final replay of what happened in the past in terms of a thriving, spirit-filled Messianic Jewish movement in the land opposed by rabbinic authorities and God moving mightily in the midst of it. I expect to see that. At the same time, I am telling you that Israel does its best to operate on certain egalitarian principles. And freedom of religion principles. And obviously, if you know Jewish history, you're going to be sensitive about the idea of missionizing. You're here to just missionize. And there are, there are plenty of missionaries who live in Israel. I mean, Christian missionaries who move there. There's a joke, if you start a Bible study in Jerusalem, you'll get one Israeli and nine Christian missionaries. So, yes, there are, there are many in certain parts of Israel, but Israel overall, still a mission field in terms of people needing to hear the good news of the Messiah, not to stop being Jews, but to be Jews who embrace Yeshua as the Messiah. And our friends in Israel are sharing the Gospel freely, and talk, especially in the secular community, sharing their faith freely. And many Israelis are seeking and open. It is the Muslim world, especially the religious Muslim world, that persecutes Christians, that kills Christians that intimidates Christians. If, if you try to be an open Christian in Gaza Strip, under Hamas, openly sharing your faith and calling on Muslims to believe in Jesus, you are risking your life to do it. No, you are forfeiting your life. It's pretty much guaranteed what's going to happen to you if you did that openly. If you did that openly in Israel, in a, just in, in, under Israeli authority, go ahead and preach. 866-34-TRUTH Let's go to the phones. We'll start with Jim in Richmond, Virginia. Welcome to the Line of Fire.
2: Hey, Dr. Brown. How are you doing?
0: Doing well. Thank you.
2: Hey, uh, my wife and I have been uh, watching Shabbat services on Friday,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and uh, it's it's been led by, uh, I think, someone you're familiar with. I won't mention a name, but... Uh, they have the blessing and the blessing of the cup of wine first, and then the then the, the bread. And mm-hmm. I think Scripture has it the other way around most of the time that I you know I've seen it. I, I just wondered what was your take on
0: on that? Oh, there there are obviously different ways of doing it. That's all. In, in, in other words, oh. yeah, you have different traditions. And one Jewish community may fix a certain tradition one way, and another Jewish community in another part of the world another way. You might have had one that's more ancient. For for example, reading through the Torah, the five books of Moses, that became a tradition that that was done in synagogues. By the time of of Jesus, this was being done regularly. If you lived in Babylon, you did it in a triennial cycle, that you read through the five books of Moses over a three-year period. If you lived in, in Israel, you did it in, in Judea, you did it in a one-year cycle. And the one-year cycle became the norm for Jews around the world. But there are various customs that come in later, uh, etc. So you, you, it, the New Testament reflects one blessing in terms of the order of things. Jewish tradition develops another. It's, it's, not, it's not like it was a fixed thing. You know what I'm saying? It's not like God gave a command, do it in this order. So these are just okay. traditions that developed. And traditional okay. Judaism developed it one way, and New Testament order may be a different way, but that's it's totally immaterial, just the way things developed. Okay. All right.
2: Just, just wondering. So yeah. uh, thank you so much.
0: Yeah, and, and look, you know, you'll, you'll see religious Jewish men wearing, wearing a yarmulke, a kippah in Hebrew, head covering. Uh, that was yeah. not a tradition that was known in Yeshua's day. That, that was uh-huh. not a common tradition. This was something that came after. But now a religious Jewish man wouldn't think of, of, of being out uh, outside or just, you know, the moment he's up in the morning putting his yarmulke on or once he's done taking a shower, putting his yarmulke on. He wouldn't think of having his head uncovered. But there was a time in history when that was not the norm. So traditions develop. And Judaism is filled with traditions that have developed different communities and over different periods of time. Hey, thanks for asking. 866-34-TRUTH. We will go to Alexander in Louisiana. Welcome to the line of fire.
3: Hey, Dr. Brown, can you hear
0: me this now? Are you speaking right into the phone as opposed to speakerphone or Bluetooth? Uh,
2: I'm speaking right into the phone.
0: Yeah, well, let's, that's the best you can do. I can hear you. Go ahead.
2: Okay. Um, so, uh, I have a friend who is transgender, and he told me that uh, at one, he's part of this uh, LGBT organization on campus. Mm-hmm. And he, he told me that uh, there was a speaker who apparently was Jewish, and this speaker uh, meant, had said something about a Jewish tradition or something that like allowed... That, that that secretly hid the fact that Jews were actually for homosexuality, but they did that because the, the Romans were against it. And I just want to know if you've ever heard that before, because I've, I've never heard that.
0: Oh, that's, that's 100% bogus. Uh, all of the Jewish traditions that we have that date back to the time of Jesus and before go beyond what's written in the Old Testament. Uh, homosexual practice is singled out as uh, especially evil... Uh, lesbianism is not focused on as much it's considered wrong but not on that same level and in, in point of fact there's there is even the ancient Jewish belief around the time of Jesus that this was not a problem in the Jewish community that it was so heinous and it was something so foreign to what Jewish people would do that say like you know two study mates two guys could share share a room share a bed it's not a problem because homosexuality is just not a problem among Jews. That that's how much it was seen as outlying. Now, Jewish tradition does recognize people that are intersex. In other words, someone that has a biological abnormality which is ends up being a mixture of male-female or there's ambiguity about that. That that is completely unrelated to homosexual practice and that, that simply has to do with biology. So no, this is whoever said this, wherever they got it from, is completely bogus. I've heard all kinds of things. I haven't heard that. Now, somebody said it, don't know where they got it from, but they didn't get it from a credible source. And they certainly did not get it from any ancient traditional Jewish sources. And then right through the codes of law, uh, Shulchan Aruch, Mishnah Torah. So these are the authoritative works that come in the 12th and the 15th, 16th centuries, that they categorically condemn homosexual practice as well. All right, thank you for asking, appreciate it
3: fire we want for fire we
1: it's the line of fire with your host dr Michael Brown get into the line of fire now by calling 86634 truth here again is dr Michael Brown.
0: Welcome, welcome to The Line of Fire. It's Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. Michael Brown, thanks for joining us. If you've got a Jewish-related question, give me a call, 866-34-TRUTH, 866-348-7884. Okay, big news for those of us who would like to go to Israel, those that were going to go with me earlier. Okay, so here's what happened. We had a trip set up for May. And everybody signed up. We filled our two buses, cut off registration, ready to go. And, of course, the virus hit. So we postponed it to October. And because of the time change and many people unable to go being during school, whatever, it worked out different dates for them, so we're going to limit it to one bus. And, but October is too iffy too much going on. There's no assurance it's going to happen. So we have moved the tour ahead to March of next year. Of course, we've reached out to everyone that's on the tour group, but March of next year. Go to my website now. Yeah, you can sign up. It's like, oh, so there's another option. Yes, yes. Another option. Go to our website, sdrbrown.org. You'll see it announced right on the home page. Sign up now. God willing, everything's going to be good to go. Life back in full flow in Israel. So we'll be able to do the tour. It's an extraordinary, extraordinary time in the land together each night. Uh, it's, it's just an amazing, amazing tour by day, great meetings and interaction at night. So askdrbrown.org. Okay, I, I've had a lot of people send me a link to an article in the Jerusalem Post by a Jewish rabbi who asked the question about the coronavirus, is it an act of God? So I want to go through this with you, and uh, the rabbi writing it, hang on, you know, I've got everything, here we go, Uh, I've got everything but his name on my printout, Uh, but he's the emeritus Rabbi of the Great Synagogue in Sydney, and uh, he, he talks about the pandemic and what's happened as a result of it and the theological question whether we should blame God or not for the catastrophe. And uh, he says, disasters have attacked human beings and nations, not the least. The Jewish people throughout history, they tended to come in two forms, natural and moral. So moral disasters, that's terrible, but it's people doing evil things to people. It's, it's terrible, but that's people doing it. But what about so-called natural disasters, right? Flood, fire, famine, tsunamis, earthquakes, pandemics, he said there's sophisticated lines of reasoning and research in relation to some, but the lawyers look for one-liners and call them acts of God. Our problem is how literally to take this rather strange phrase, how, how seriously we should view its theological undertones, and whether uh, to blame God uh, for these these acts, these disasters. So he says that if, if we say the catastrophes have been caused by God, then we want to know his motives. Why did he do it? So it's Rabbi Raymond Apple. Thank you. Why did, why did he do it? What, what prompted God to do this, bring this disaster, and how should we respond? You know, if, if I just got punished for something, I'd want to know what I did to be punished for, right? Um, and he says, that at the very least, we want to know whether he could have prevented the evil. If he lacks that power, it seems we're thrown back upon the old dualistic theory that there are rival forces outside and opposed to him, that there's an eternal struggle between light and darkness. Sometimes one force wins, sometimes the other we're left, as Arnold Toynbee wrote, instead of history as victims of a cosmic joke. So obviously, if we believe in the God of the Bible, then we don't think he's lacking in power. It's like, I wish it didn't happen, but I really can't do anything because my hands are just tied. Now, he has given authority to human beings on the earth. And we know that there is spiritual war and that there's Satan is active, but we also know that God remains God. God remains king. And Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth is given to him. So the idea of God being powerless to stop a natural disaster is unacceptable from a biblical viewpoint. So he, he gives some options. He says, so what are we to say about the pandemic? Let's consider eight possibilities. It's from a Jewish rabbi. All right. One The evil is God punishing us. He says, that's too harsh. The world is guilty of many kinds of mischief, but he has promised not to destroy it. Eliezer Berkowitz, the modern theologian, writes concerning the Holocaust, and anyone who suggests that we are sinners in the Holocaust was our punishment is simply being obscene. Now, let me stop there. That is a fundamental difference between Jewish thought and Christian thought because Jewish thought would, or, or let's just say, non-fundamentalist Jewish thought, because there are fundamentalist rabbis to this day who believe the Holocaust was, was a divine punishment, that Jews had become too secular, that they weren't following the Sabbath, keeping the commandments, and they were assimilating, and therefore this came as a judgment. There are ultra-Orthodox rabbis that still hold to that view today. The vast majority of Jewish thinkers would consider that view obscene. So a million and a half Jewish babies and children were killed because Jews were assimilating? They'd have a massive problem with that. Many Christians would say "But human nature is so fundamentally wicked outside of God's grace that that it's only by mercy we've lived another day. As for Genesis 8, uh, Genesis 8 only says that God will not destroy the earth again with a flood, that he won't wipe us out because we're evil. In other words, Genesis 8 is telling us that we deserve to be wiped out completely all the time, but God in his mercy won't do that. And, and the, the Torah blessings and curses, Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26, do speak of terrible judgment coming on our people through history, and the prophets refer to this as well as the historical books, because of our sin. And certainly, when you think of the sins of the human race worldwide, we're not just talking Jewish people, the sins of the human race worldwide, the, the amount of babies we've aborted, the, the amount of people killed for no good reason, the amount of false religion, and blaspheming of God, and, and injustice, and all the horrors going on in the world. It's a, it's a miracle God doesn't wipe us out. It's a miracle God doesn't just decimate us. I remember years ago, following a case, maybe about 12 years ago, 13 years ago, of a, a girl that went missing in, in Florida, and turns out across the street from her, There was a guy who had been convicted of of sex crimes with children previously, but somehow was out and somehow was living in that neighborhood. They just didn't find that guy immediately as the obvious suspect. But he he crept in through a a bedroom window and he he kidnapped this girl in the middle of the night and abused her and killed her. And when they found her body, he ultimately brought them to where he had buried her. Uh, When they found her body, you know, she was with her favorite toy and when they did the autopsy, they said that they believed she was buried alive. I, I remember hearing that and I was just completely devastated. And I told Nancy, How is it that God has not wiped out the whole human race? It was that, that one act was so heinous. And you know, it's not just one act, there are many, many horrific things like that that take place. So heinous, so horrific that how could God not wipe out the whole race with so much wickedness on our planet? So I, I differ with Rabbi Apple here, that, no, it's not too harsh to think of the virus as being a punishment for sin. The question is, what's sin? And the question is, were we warned by God through scripture, through prophetic voices, that if we didn't repent, things like this would happen? That would be the question. But certainly what the virus has done, and we deserve, as the human race, okay, as a race, we deserve far more than this, okay, in terms of judgment. A second possibility, God has no control over the disaster, and he rightly says impossible. By definition, he is all good. He wants the best for his world. He's also all-powerful and is cap- excuse me, capable of preserving his creation. Option three, man is at least partly responsible because he didn't protect the world properly. True, man could and should work hard to attend the universe, but why absolve God of his share of blame? say blame, I'll, I'll explain that in a moment. Four, we cannot explain the evil, but we can alleviate the pain and lessen the suffering. True, we should care better for other people, but this is a moral judgment and challenge which still leaves the problem intact. Five, God shares our pain, as Psalm 91.15 says explicitly, he says, I'll be with you in sarah, in, in, in trouble and in pain. But doesn't he do more than feel bad about it? Harold Kushner says, and when bad things happen to good people, that God sits shiva with us. In other words, he mourns with us. But maybe there's a case for saying that god sometimes has to use the yom kippur phrase himself and say i've i've sinned and and acted wrongly god all right now so let me pause here on the one hand judaism is totally reverential of god and praises him through the day with multiple prayers and, and three set times of prayer every day as, as the king and the Lord and good and, and, and the Savior and, and confesses our wickedness and praises his goodness. Every traditional Jew does that multiple times a day. So over the course of his life, hundreds of thousands of prayers like this are uttered, praising God as majestic king, good, and, and we have sinned and we are guilty. And yet there can be some type of Jewish give and take and discussion Say, well, maybe God sinned maybe he sinned against you say that's outrageous that blasphemous i i one thousand one trillion percent reject any such thought and obviously if you talk to a traditional do you believe god can sin obviously not so i reject even thinking like this but the jewish thought would be hey we're the partners in this and he let us down okay number six maybe it's not a perfect world The philosophers agree that God has no duty to make a perfect world, but the beginning of Genesis says that everything he made was good, nothing is said about defects or flaws. Yes, but, but, we sinned, right? God made everything good, as Ecclesiastes says, but man sought out many, many wicked devices. Number seven, disasters must be seen in perspective. As there are more good than evil in the world, we should constantly count our blessings, but can we let God off the hook? Eight, we have to keep believing and praying and hoping for the messianic redemption. True, and God will help us along, but the psalmist is right to ask, how long, O Lord, how long? And he says, one day we'll come closer to an answer to the current pandemic. In the meantime, the human mind, implanted by God, is capable of even greater bursts of effort to overcome this grave medical, social, and economic problem. We hope that God will arise and assure us, in the words of Rabbi Levi Yitzchak berdichev so that our suffering is for his sake. In other words, if, if we could just hear from God in some way in the midst of this, it would be assuring and helpful that this suffering is somehow to his honor. I share that with you just to give you insights into how a Jewish rabbi might process the current pandemic. In my book, When the World Stops, I ultimately argue that we don't even need to know who or what sent it but rather that God is getting our attention and turning our hearts to him. And then, of course, we have to love our neighbor as ourself. And let me reiterate, we, the human race, deserve to be wiped off the planet. We are here exclusively by the grace and mercy of God. We'll be right back.
1: it's the line of fire with your host activist author international speaker and theologian dr michael brown your voice of moral cultural and spiritual revolution get into the line of fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH here again is dr michael brown hey
0: friends in less than 30 minutes yes, less than 30 minutes, we'll be doing our weekly YouTube chat. So just join us at Ask Dr. Brown, ASKDR Brown on YouTube. All right. And make sure when you're there, you subscribe if you're not a subscriber to our YouTube channel. So that'll be 415 Eastern Standard Time. If you have questions we can't get to now, you can bring them up in the chat room. Again, 415 Eastern Standard Time at Ask Dr. Brown, ASKDR Brown. Also, If you want to help us bring the gospel to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, if you're watching on our Ask Dr. Brown Facebook page, just click on the Donate button to stand with us in reaching our Jewish people with the good news of the Messiah. Or on YouTube, there's a dollar sign beneath the chat box or our website, AskDrBrown.org. Click on Donate. All right, back to the phones. We start in Maryland with Susan. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Thanks for calling.
3: Hi, Dr. Brown. Thank you very much. I appreciate the, the answer. Um, I did want to say I tried to go online for the petition from Genesis 1-2-3. I couldn't find it, um, so it, okay, maybe so you could post that sometime on your website or on the Facebook, yeah, then, we were, we were
0: Yeah, we were just looking at that as a team during the break. Yeah, so it's Genesis 123.co, and the petition is Save the Hagia Sophia from Islamic oh, extremists. Oh, okay. I saw that. Yeah, okay, that's I, the I'm one. Sorry. Yeah, that was the discussion we just had, the very same discussion uh, okay, as to what thank it you was. So much. So, I'll, yeah. I'll
3: go back and do that. Okay, so my question is Would Israel, uh, in, in the next election, let's say that the hostil- hostilities towards evangelical uh, believers, Christian, um, and uh, anti-Semitism. Would Israel ever allow um, uh, Christians to gain asylum if, if conditions got really terrible in the United States for evangelicals?
0: Well, um, that's a theoretical question that I don't know that I could answer. Um, here, here's the issue. Here's the issue. Israel is only so big, right? Right now, the total population between Israel and what would be called the Palestinians would be Over 9 million people, okay? Uh, 9, 10 million, I don't know the exact number. And and there's only so much room in the land. And if you suddenly had a large influx of American Christians to Israel uh, running from from religious persecution, uh, it would have, you know, there are like 100 million professing evangelicals in America, you know. So not only would you completely override the country, not only would you now take away its Jewish identity, but it would seem to most that this is just a ploy for Christians to move in and evangelize. Uh, I I do not see a situation uh, where that's going to be the case, uh, where where Americans are going to have to be fleeing our country to a place like Israel to flee from religious persecution. um, Because ultimately, yeah, you have freedom of religion in Israel, but you don't have freedom the way we have it here just because it's the dynamics going on with the jewish world and the islamic world and, and various things like that uh so you know even if if uh, joe biden is elected and things lurch further left uh, i don't see it uh, all we have to do is stand up basically it there are enough of us that we just have to stand up and hold our ground and if we do uh the the tide will turn but uh you know if there was if the if it came to the point of bloodshed in America, that Christians were being persecuted to the point that we had to go underground and our, our blood was being shed, the whole nation would collapse. The, the, there would be a national collapse, and it would be part of world chaos and collapse. If America collapsed, the whole world economy would collapse, etc. So mm-hmm. I, I don't I don't see that happening. Now let's say that you are a legitimate uh, Pakistani Christian fleeing from religious persecution and somehow were able to come to Israel, would you be welcome there? Uh, theoretically, yes. Um, but just because of the amount of people trying to get in and, and the challenges Israel has with assimilating people, you have a lot of, of people, just refugees from Africa, fleeing from economic hardship that wanna make their way into Israel. So it's, Israel has to just be a bit more careful in terms of who it lets in. Uh, but the problem is if America falls, uh, that would have meant Europe has fallen already, and that would have meant that uh, there would not be a lot of countries that are free on the planet. So that's, that's why America's standing is, is important. But thanks for asking the question. I think it's the first time Thank I've been asking. So you're it. saying yeah. the
3: pulpit needs to stay
0: strong? Yeah, the, 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 <laughs> the pulpit and uh, every every believer on the in, in America. You know, let your pulpit be Facebook, let your pulpit be Snapchat, let your pulpit be yeah. your neighborhood, your workplace. Absolutely. Yeah, we've got to stand. Thank you. 866-34-TRUTH. We go to Paula in Durham, North Carolina. Thanks for calling the Line of Fire. Hi, how are you? Doing very well, thank you.
3: I just, I'm not sure how to ask this question, but what I want to know is, would it be helpful to me as a Gentile Christian to learn and study the history of the Jews and maybe even learn the language to do
0: studying? The um, history of the Jewish people is worth knowing. There are many histories, you know, short volumes and large volumes. If you just go online and type in best history of the Jews, you know, you'll get you get a whole list of potential volumes. So um, it's nice to know the history. It's worth knowing. Uh, by the time you would learn Hebrew well enough, to really be able to study the the Hebrew scriptures in Hebrew would be many, many years of hard work. Um, Learning the Hebrew language directly would not help you understand the New Testament in itself without a whole lot of further study. So it's just good to to understand the history of the Jewish people uh, because of God singling out the Jewish people in the Old Testament and just to know what's happened over the centuries since. That's worth knowing. Uh, but to learn the Hebrew language, unless you were really called to do in-depth teaching and and study of the Hebrew Bible, it'd be many, many, many years before you would really be able to use it in a fruitful, fruitful way.
3: Yeah, I just hear ministers when um, when they're preaching talk about, "Well, this is what it means in Hebrew," or or whether you know, go back to the old language to redefine what it says in the in the Bible today yeah
0: but a lot and of I times yeah, it's... a lot of times they're not accurate. they heard it from somebody who heard it from somebody. Oh <laughs> yeah so okay. yeah uh, 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 I always listen carefully and most of the time it's like oh too bad but they, their overall point they make was good. so um, the better thing to do Paula is is just to have some good uh, commentaries and things that give you background to the Bible. Uh, you know, you can get a, a, a study Bible that is just based on the, the, the culture, you know, a, a Bible background commentary. That would help you the most, Paula. And okay, here's some Jewish background from that day and things like that. Uh, check, out, check out one volume, Craig Keener, K-E-E-N-E-R, Craig Keener. IVP, University Press, the IVP Bible Background Commentary for the New Testament. So it's Craig Keener, K-E-E-N-E-R, Bible Background Commentary. The IVP Bible Background Commentary, and you want to get it for the New Testament. It's one volume. So you get a ton of reliable background from the Jewish world and the Greco-Roman world as well. All right. Uh, time for one more call. Yeah, let's try it out. Uh, Lewis in Rochester, New York. Thanks for calling the line of fire.
3: Hi, Dr. Brown.
0: Hey. Go ahead, sir. Great
3: to hear your voice, man. Yeah, yeah thank you. Uh-huh.
2: Um, I have a question about um, Job. Yeah. Well, I understand that I, and when I read Job, it talks about that he was an upright man. Yes, sir. But I have one of my teachers that said that um, Job's sin was pride, and God was trying to deal with Job's pride. And that's why all all these calamities came over Job.
0: No, sir. Categorically, no. The, the, The calamities came because of his righteousness. The calamities came because there was a wager between God and Satan because satan made exactly. the accusation satan made the accusation uh-huh. that no one worships god for pure motives that the only reason people worship god is because of the benefits that they get and if you take away the benefits they'll curse god to to his face and god said oh yeah what mm-hmm. about job yeah well sure take away all this good stuff and he'll curse you now over the course of his trials god does bring things to light in his life but he, he was not suffering because he sinned, as one commentator explained. He sinned because he was suffering. When the friends kept provoking him, then he spoke out of turn and, and wrongly accused God, uh, and God dealt with him. So we can go through things, and whatever we go through, God can use for our greater good. But no, sir, that's a, That's mm-hmm. sadly a cop-out Because people want to try to find a reason. Well, there must have been some sin in his life, meaning, well, otherwise something like that could happen to me. And that couldn't be the case. So he must have sinned. If he had sinned, it completely undercuts the whole message of the book. If he was some guilty sinner and God was trying to teach him something, it completely undercuts the whole message of the book. As I know through writing a commentary on it. So, no, that's wrong. People say he married the wrong woman, or he said this, or he said that. That's why. No, these things happened because of his uprightness, because there was no one like him on the earth. Now, once the plot unfolds, yes, God does work things in Job, so Job knows God even better. But no, Job had not committed sin that opened the door for the devil to attack. In fact, the devil could not attack without God's permission. All right, 15 minutes from now, join me on YouTube for our weekly YouTube chat.